I asked them if I said, Hey, you want to test these? And they said, Nay, nay, you got to wait till tomorrow. <laughs> gonna pass, so, pass on the testes. Nay, yeah, they nay. passed on it. I don't remember I was, what I was doing last night. And I was like, Nay, nay. And, and it reminded me of Tony. I was like, Oh, that's such a Tony. Yeah, that's nay, nay. Welcome, everybody, to the Five Dirty Bikers Podcast. Hey, Tony. Yes, Mike. What in God's name of a dresser drawer full of mothball smelling underwear are we talking about tonight? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Five Dirty Bikers podcast. Tonight, we have a guest on. Uh, does some really cool stuff. Uh, vintage bike builder. Taylor, you mess with cars, too, don't you? Am I, I do. Yeah, kind of, kind of does it all. Uh, it is Taylor from Classic Octane. If you haven't checked out his YouTube, you need to head on over there. It's Classic Octane on YouTube. Really cool stuff. A lot of videos and really informative on top of that. So I'm going to hand it off to you, Taylor, to do a little introduction and tell everybody what, what you're about. Yeah. So again, my name is Taylor. So I run a little YouTube channel called Classic Octane, which is basically just uh, documenting what I do in my shop. So anything from bike restorations to my favorite thing to do is like get old, rusty piece of junk bikes running again. You know, I kind of pull them out of barns and wherever I can find them and go through the process of cleaning out the carbs, finding if it has spark, you know, going through the whole um, process to get it up and running and kind of document that uh, and then pretty much everything in between so somehow to stuff and some just overall projects and um, most of the time I'm doing customer builds and kind of a mix of a bunch of different things nice I've seen a lot of your videos are just will it run right exactly <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's a series that I started because I found a love for getting these old machines kind of up and running again and there's a lot of joy that's brought to me from that of just some old piece of junk that somebody else would have just happily scrapped that you can kind of drag in and, you know, with as little parts as possible, get it back up and running is a, a good time as far as I'm concerned. So Taylor, your background, you're self-taught. Is that correct? Oh yeah, that's right. And so your, uh, your, your family was a big influence on, on why you, you took up this hobby as well. Am I right with saying that? Oh yeah. So my, uh, my mom is the gearhead of the family. So she's the one that got me into what? mostly with cars. That's right. She's a big gearhead. She's got a 31 model a roadster. She blasts around in and I've just now started to get her into bikes. She just got her first bike and she's just kind of tootling around the neighborhood right now. She hasn't gotten I out on the big it. roads yet, but, but she's doing it. She's giving two wheels a shot. And, uh, yeah, so she was the big influence in my family. And originally it was all cars majority of uh, the work I do now is just strictly motorcycles. Is your main focus Hondas? I would say yes and no. So my main focus is classic bikes. So pretty much anything pre-78 is about as, as new as I want to go. Um, but most of that ends up being Hondas just because that's where the most popular models are and that's what the most kind of views come from on the youtube side of things which then turns into customers that are interested in having the same bike built for them and it kind of just snowballs into more and more honda content so one of the main things i want to try to do over the next year is branch out more into to different models so i've built my triumph hardtail it's behind me now i've built a badass by the way i appreciate it it's uh gonna go through uh the next version of modifications here pretty soon because it's up in storage now um because i had it in the hand-built motorcycle show here in austin last year so once it was in the show i kind of put it on display in my office but now i miss riding it so i need to take it down and do a will it run video on getting it back up on the street and blasting around and bar hopping and all that kind of fun stuff that i built it to do but yeah i, I want to try to get a little bit more into kind of other makes and models too because i'm getting a little bit the same honda motorcycle over and over again and want to spice it up a little bit so is this also your business taylor it is. So I um, am, what's it, November, 18 months into doing it full time. Wow. Nice. That's really, so what, do people ship you bikes from around the country? Yeah, yeah. So I've 
just in the last 18 months of doing it full time, I built a bike for a guy in New York, Maine, Chicago, Memphis. I'm building a bike for a guy in LA right now. Uh, a couple of guys local around in Texas. I'm doing a 750 for a guy in Dallas. But I would say probably I don't know, 75% of the bikes I build are shipped in or I find the bike, build it, and then ship it to someone. Oh, wow. So you're keeping pretty busy, even though with everything that's going on right now, you're keeping your hands full? Yeah, definitely. So there was a little bit of a, a lull in the beginning when everybody was kind of freaking out and we weren't really sure how it's going to keep going and what's going to be open and what's not. But luckily that only lasted for a month or so. And then since then, I would say I've been busier this year than, than last year. I think there's a lot of people that are just dying to get out on the road and kind of mm. forget about what's going on. And it's making motorcycles a lot more popular. That's with classic bikes as well as new bikes. I mean, I talked to some of the guys at the new dealerships and they can't keep bikes in stock because they're selling so many because people are dying for the the escape that is riding. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, luckily I've been been really busy and still have a backlog to put me into 2021 without having to, to worry about going out and getting new customers. How many bikes have you built this year? 10, 12, something like that. Wow. God okay. damn. Nice. So we're all content creators here. Did your making of a YouTube channel and your content drive your business or was it your business that drove your content? So it was the YouTube channel started years and years before it was a business. Okay. So I, I started the YouTube channel from a uh, kind of suggestion from my wife and because I was starting to work on classic bikes. I was starting to mess around a little bit just with my own stuff. And, you know, she was like, well, why don't you think about making a YouTube channel? And I'm like, I don't know that anybody's going to want to watch me on the internet working with an old motorcycle. So I started to kind of look around with what kind of content was out there, what other classic motorcycle channels existed. And I found that there was this huge void on YouTube of classic motorcycle content. There was either, you know, the new guys that are doing reviews of the brand new Ducatis, or there was a guy in his garage filming on a potato that you can't see what he's doing. And he's stumbling through an, a how-to video and there wasn't really that middle ground of good enough production quality to be able to watch, you know, nothing that's too crazy or too high dollar or unrelatable. So that's what kind of pushed me towards, you know, why don't I just try and make some videos and, you know, you guys know that you can record something and if it's garbage, you can just throw it away. Nobody has to see it. You know, it's not like I'm doing this you know, on live TV. So I made the first couple of videos and started to get some traction. And I did that for, I guess, probably six years um, before I kind of snowballed it into a way that uh, I could make it into a, a legitimate business and kind of jump and leave my uh, cushy corporate job and kind of pursue it full time. Nice. I can tell you, I tried, I tried filming on a potato once and it turned out that that video was a spud. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, Mike. <laughs> These are the jokes, people. Mike, I think you, I think uh, oh, Taylor, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Mike, uh, you might want to uh, let the listeners know. Let's paint a mental picture here. Uh, what kind of prop do you have there next to you on hanging over your microphone? That's my Dyna chain. Wow. Mike loves Dinas, Taylor. They're his favorite. So Mike, Mike's, Mike's got a little, his little toy Dinah that somebody graciously gifted him and he's got it hung over his microphone via chain. And it looks like it's got the wobbles. I'm trying to get it where it's still in the shot. There we go. Look at there. See, <laughs> it's like a Christmas ornament, only it's not. <laughs> Careful. If it goes too fast, it'll fall right off your microphone. Hey, this is better. See, because I can move this one. Most of most Dinas are yard ornaments, so they can't be moved. <laughs> I will tell you, though, Mr. Taylor, was that 69 Camaro that you have? Yep. 68. 69. The, uh, the Camaro is very, very, very nice. Uh, and I was also, I was looking at your Instagram and was speaking with Mr. Cox on the phone today. And you had a, I don't know what color of blue it was, but it was a um, inline four KZ 700, KZ 750. Or it might have been the Honda. It was a, it had a Honda gas tank on it. Then it was probably Honda because I haven't put a Honda on a KZ. Okay. Or a Honda right. tank on a KZ. I really like that color of blue, but you had hooped it and, you know, done the whole street racer thing, cafe racer deal out of it, which is really, really nice. And I love that crap. So I love those, those fucking seats you use. Who makes those things? Uh, it's a company called Tough Side. Yeah. T-U-F-F-S-I-D-E. It's a guy named Chris that I've built a great relationship with and he's out of uh, Vegas, I think. And he, yeah, does some really good work. So I end up putting his seats on almost all of my, my bikes. I've been really happy with them. They're really good looking. I'm in the process of doing a 70 CB 450. Yeah. I'm going to have to get one of those seats. Write that down, Tony. Tough yeah. side. 
tough side. I'm going to write that down right now. Because <laughs> you will not remember it. Man, no. I can't remember shit. I'm old. And I'm only, I'm only going to tell you once, so. Yeah. <laughs> you just been told. And the whole time we've been sitting here doing this, I have been trying to figure out what your shirt says. Don't let the bastards. Says, Don't let the bastards get you down. Oh, that's a man. That's a good saying right there. <laughs> As the has the popularity of cafe racer scrambler style bike. That's, you know, that's really big right now. Is that driving the style of builds that you're doing or have you always kind of gravitated towards that style or? Yeah. So I would say that I kind of gravitated towards that a long time ago before it was as popular. I like to think that I did at least. Maybe it was as popular back then too, but um, I've always just liked vintage things in general. So I have an eye towards vintage motorcycles, but when I look at some of them, they look a little bit bulky and a little bit heavy. So I like when people strip them down, kind of only what's needed for the bike to perform is left. And so that is what gives you that kind of cafe or brat or whatever kind of style you want to call it. And that really kind of resonates with me because it's no frills. It's none of the extra stuff. It's none of the huge parts and pieces that come on these bikes stock. It cuts like, I don't know, a hundred pounds off the bike and, you know, just gives you a nice clean look. So I kind of gravitated towards that, which then turned into content, which then created more people wanting me to build those bikes. And it kind of fed into, you know, a bigger and bigger um, showing of those styles of bikes. He's not into the aids. The the rider aids, the the newer yeah. stuff. I have not really messed with a ton of newer bikes. So I just recently bought like the most modern bike that I've ever had, which is this like KLR 650 just so I can go play in the dirt with my friends. Mike had oh. one. I did. Oh my gosh. That bike is, is a modern. How, how uh, what year is it? It's a 13. Okay. What kind of dirt playing are you doing in the, with the KLR? Yeah. So what my buddies and I do, we like to go up at, you know, whatever, 7 a.m. Through the summer, that was riding season for us because it was too hot in the afternoon. So about, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours west of Austin, you can get out to these little country dirt roads and we like kind of blast around on those. And so you'll get into a little bit of kind of river crossing and stuff. So we'll kind of blast around on that. So I'm not doing any like single track riding or anything like that you know blast around on on some gravel and enough to make it a little scary if you hit some some deep sand or something you know just to make sure you're on your toes but well, i can tell you i've taken it my i had a um an 18 2018 solar yellow klr that i'd put klr dash and put a ton of bolt on stuff on never did the suspension on it but you i can tell you that lights on it it looked like the fucking sun going down the road <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I had strapped on every Cyclops ADV Cyclops Adventure Sports light I could possibly put on that thing just to just to have as much brightness as I could. It looked like a train, but <laughs> I can tell you that single track there are ve- there are much better options than a KLR. Right. Um, it will it will most definitely beat you up in the single track. It'll most definitely beat you up in the mud and doing very technical riding, but it can be done with that bike. It's just, you know, how much you want to do. I uh, I ended up trading that for a, a CRF450L. It's it's more capable on the technical stuff, but it's nowhere near as comfortable as the as the KLR is on, you know, on the interstate or whatever, just because of the wind blast and all that. Right. And you don't, and you don't have the doohickey. <laughs> I do. I, I never did the doohickey. You never did. The, what exactly is the fucking doohickey? Cam chain it's, tensioner. Yeah, I actually have one to put on mine. I haven't done it yet. So. Nice. But that's what, yeah, that's the, what everybody told me. As soon as I mentioned KLR, they're like, you got to do the doohickey mod or it's going to gonna explode. And like, well, people put <laughs> yeah. 40,000 miles on it with no, you know, on the factory tensioner with no problem, but. I'll have well, one that will explode if I don't do it. Right. <laughs> no, they the, the factory, the uh, cam tensioner spring breaks. And so it makes it to where when you undo the little uh, 8 or 10 millimeter bolt to where it would automatically adjust the cam chain tension, it doesn't work properly. So you end up jumping time and causes a lot of issues. Sounds like, well, that what was that Brian from Fort Nine fucking knocked mm-hmm. a hole in his crankcase and fixed it with a, with a yeah. Coke can? Yeah, that was when he was... JB Weld? Yeah. 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 Yeah, he, he bashed that thing. He fucked that bike up, dude. So, Taylor, are you, are you a Harley man at all? You work on Harleys or nay, nay? I have 
probably a collective seven, maybe eight minutes on a Harley. And I, <laughs> I'm in my and 10 years good. of riding. <laughs> that makes my, Mike happy. Yeah. <laughs> my, my stepdad has a, you know, one of the Harleys, the big one. I don't know what it is. It's like a soft tail or something. <laughs> the big one. <laughs> you know, we're going chrome. And I got Ryan is like that. shaking his head right now. The big I gotta one. go. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to go put his chaps on and sit on the couch. Goddamn right <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, Ryan is one of those. Ryan is one of those. Uh, he's one of those BMW, like the BMW Corvette snobs. Where if you don't ride a Harley, then he won't have anything to do with you. He doesn't <laughs> wave at anybody. He hi hats everyone, and just because he rides his little precious Harley Davidson around, he's better than everyone else. God you know what he's it. about okay. to tell you too. Yep. No, he's about to tell me shit. <laughs> Don't <Mike>. roll. <laughs> you can fuck off. <laughs> there it is, folks. Hey, I do. I will say, I do have a Harley on my bucket list, though. But it's like a forty-eight knucklehead. That's my mm. kind of Harley. Wow. So that's a insert uh, mainly grunt here. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Oh, oh, if oh, I do oh. one, it will be uh, it will be something like that. Maybe a pan head, I don't know, early shovel head, something like that. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe when I'm older, I'll get into it. When I'm your age, I'll look. At it. Mike, you should invent the moose knuckle head. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> what Mike was going to say right when he ended that is that we support all motorcycles on our on our podcast. <laughs> We do and, actually, and we and we really like to give each other crap about it. But he's not he's not he's not entirely wrong. I I, I am I am a Harley guy, and I'm a Harley fanboy, and I've been on Harleys since uh, the you know the mid early to mid '80s. So um, it's just a part of who I am. I, I don't deny any other motorcycles. I just ride what I ride. I just won't I mean, ride anything else. The thing is, for me too, a little bit of if it is just a function, right? So how I like to ride. I was looking at a bunch of your bikes and and they are absolutely amazing and i'm like oh i'd love to own one of those but i just don't know what i would do with it because that style of bike is not conducive to how i ride so you know i love long trips i love you know 650 miles in a day and i would maybe do that once on a bike like yours and then i would be dead so you would have hemorrhoids that were incurable exactly (laughs) but i mean those bikes are those bikes are badass i mean i'm not going to deny anything i was listening to i was watching one of your videos actually just about 10 minutes ago and it's amazing to me how maybe i took it for granted or maybe i didn't even know but you do a little bit of work of those things and a little bit of work on them and they sound amazing yeah i mean they're they're solid solid bikes i mean i i agree with you that would i want to ride one across the country probably not but most people you know, myself included that are riding them are, you know, 30, 45 minutes here, go to the bar, go over, you know, riding around town, that kind of riding, which it's a blast for that kind of stuff. So if you're not out in the wind for, for hours at a time, then it's a super fun bike, but that's why you got to have a bike for every occasion. You know what I mean? It's like, I want to have eight, 10 bikes. So depending on what I'm doing, I just grab the keys to that one. That's a good argument. I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> and the, a bike and for the every reason, occasion. And the reason that the older import bikes sound so good is when you don't have to manufacture 50 thou tolerance into everything, it doesn't clack as much. No, man. All you need is a matchbook and a fucking flathead screwdriver on these old, older bikes, and you can get them rolling. They give you all the tools right in the little little pack under the seat. You can take the whole darn engine apart and put it back together with just that little toolkit. That's it. Except for those That's the way it should Phillips be. Heads, bits, bolts. <laughs> you better throw sons it. of bitches. That's because they're JIS, not <laughs> Phillips. Okay, so if we want to get real technical on why that is, but I won't. I won't you drag better, you down there. No, you. That's the thing. You better have an impact driver when you're taking a import motor apart because if you come across oh, yeah. Phillips, you're not going to get it off with an impact <laughs> like a quarter inch impact driver you're not going to get it off with any of that you better have a manual hammer impact with a Phillips oh, yeah. head bit i wouldn't touch one without it talk, talk to me about m units i see a lot a lot of your videos wiring these things up are they yeah. really that simple they are legit i i love them my triumph behind me's got one in it i just um most of the bikes i build now are kind of going that direction and it's just a really cool product so it's made by this company called moto gadget which i think they're out of germany and it just allows you to replace all of your you know in my case 40 or 50 year old wiring with this little module it's like the size of a credit card and that does all of your fuses your flasher relay everything is all built into it and then it also lets you program 
all kinds of different stuff. So you can change, like if you double press a button, it'll have a different functionality than if you single press it or click and hold. You can run all your LED lights and adjust frequencies and timing. And like you can get really, really nerdy with how kind of you know custom you want to do it. But in its simplest form, it just is now solid state and brand new as opposed to all the old uh, relays and fuses and stuff that always end up burning out and leave you stranded on the side of the road. Nice. I know they look clean when you put them in. Yeah, they're um, they're a solid product. I'm starting to uh, kind of branch out a little bit more too. They have some other products I'd like to try out um, that simplify some of the like handlebar switches and stuff so that you can have the absolute minimum amount of wiring in your bike. So if you're building something super custom and you want it to be nice and clean, you know, instead of having 30 wires running up to your headlight, you can have, you know, six or eight and it just kind of helps clean. And when you're trying to you know, simplify everything, having half the wires or less, uh, it definitely helps with that. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, uh, I've got the, cause a lot of guys who buy the CRFs want to do the, um, X or R rear fender conversion. <laughs> so it takes, takes the, replaces the brake light and all that stuff, you know, and moves it up and, and cleans everything up. I just wanted to have my subframe in the back, uh, in case I wanted to put a rack or anything like that. on Another there. light, I, another light. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Another I, light I strap lights in the back too. Uh-huh. Um, but I've got the uh, M Gad- the Moto Gadget M Blaze pin as my turn signals on the back, and they're pricey. I mean, I think I paid you know ninety bucks for a pair of them, but they're the brightest, smallest turn signals I could find, and right. they're absolutely amazing. So, have you yeah, used those I, pins yet? Uh, I have. So I've used those, and there's another little. Um, what do they call it? Somebody called Kellerman and they're like super tiny little bullet style LEDs that are super bright. And they make some that you can put on the rear too, that do the turn signals and the brake lights. So it's Ooh. turn signal, tail light and brake light in a, like I would say probably the size of your pinky nail, a uh, little bullet light. Oh, wow. They're awesome, but they are very pricey. I think they're like 80 or $90 each. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's God, a damn. hard check to write, but it's, it's hard to find anything better because it seems like there's this huge kind of variance in those kinds of lights is either you have something that's that M unit or, you know, that level, or you have a, a cheap, you know, kind of made in China light that's super dim and sure it was $9, but you know, nobody can see it. And when it comes to turn signals and brake lights on a motorcycle, like probably not something you want to cheap out on. You want to make sure people know when you're stopping. Right. Oh, that's right. a plus. Yeah. yeah and that's what. Enema. You, you don't want to what? A Ford enema. I know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they are frowned upon. I'm telling you. I'm just that's happy not just they a took frown. The, that's it. I'm happy, I'm happy they just started taking all the emblems and the big stand-up things off the top of the hood. Because, man, I'd hate to get one of those up my scrot or rectum <laughs> or anus or anything. <laughs> Jesus, Mike. Mercedes emblem tramp stamp on your back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That would be horrible. That would not be good. Hey, everybody. We just want to give a big shout out to our patrons, the Five Dirty Biker patrons, again this week. And uh, this week we have uh, another new patron. Chris Foster is our new patron this week. Chris Foster, thank you so much for becoming a Five Dirty Biker patron. We would uh, like to welcome you to the family by saying, fuck off. So thanks for joining <laughs> us. Thank you, God, Chris. So and fuzzy. Right, man. <laughs> Good lord, Jesus, man. No, we really appreciate all of our patrons and and the community that's being built around that. And if you uh, don't want to join Patreon, that's great. We still want you to become a part of our community, and we have a Discord. And our Discord is what, Mike? It's free. It's frizzle. Yeah, our Discord's free. So if you want to get on our Discord, go to 5dirtybikers.com, click on our Discord link, and you can jump right into our Discord. It is free. Hey, yes. it's free. Free. Free, free, free. Dustin. Yes. Tell them. It don't cost nothing. <laughs> it's no. free. Very. free. <laughs> All right, we're going to fire into these Discord It is questions. free. And speaking of Discord, we have some questions coming from our Discord members tonight for Taylor from Classic Octane. So we're going to jump into that. Discord friends, FDB's about to answer your questions. Make sure you head over to 5dirtybikers.com and click the link on the homepage to visit our Discord and become a member. I'm going to go with the first question from our Discord. This All comes right. from Jared Weems and from Weems Motor Co. He said, what is the most frustrating motorcycle you have worked on? Most frustrating motorcycle I've worked on. A Harley Dyna. 
I would have to say, and this is probably going to, so believe it or not, it is a triumph. So it's a triumph that I've had for a couple of years. And I started to try and do this like apocalypse build series with it earlier this year when everything was starting to shut down. And I pulled it out of storage and I was going to get it running and I was going to just kind of piece, you know, parts together and try and make it a, you know, somewhat roadworthy bike with just kind of parts I had on the shelf. And it completely fought me the whole way. This trying to get the engine apart, every bolt was stripped, trying to pull it out, cleaned everything up, tried to get new piston rings on it, didn't realize it was already bored out. Piston rings are the wrong size and it's, uh, it's back in storage, just exactly how it came out with maybe a few more scratches on it from me cursing at it but it um yeah it was one of those bikes that did not want to come back to life so when i do some of these will it run videos they come back super easy i mean it's a, a carb clean and a fresh battery and you're off and running this one is, is does not want to come back to life it wants to stay dead it wants to to stay in the shed as far as i know it wants to be parted out is what it wants right or made into some kind of sculpture or some art <laughs> i put in my office or something but i don't know that it's going back on the road at least it's not under my hands i don't know maybe somebody wants to buy it you can let me know sounds like sounds like jared weems has a ch- has a challenge on his hands he got there a challenge go. on his hands it's available jared weems just contact <laughs> right. taylor from classic <laughs> octane i'll make you i'll make you a deal it's a great bike yep. i promise there you go. <laughs> Challenge. It looks, it looks brand new. <laughs> <laughs> Runs like a <laughs> I can see the Facebook post now. Brand newish. Newish. <laughs> All right. The next one comes from C Shroom. Um, what trends have you noticed in the classic Japanese bike world, and how long until you feel classic Japanese motorcycles get the same level of acknowledgement that American and British bikes receive? The classic Japanese trend has been going on for a while. I don't know that it's going to be going away anytime soon. Uh, I think people are getting a little bit tired of this kind of same old, we'll call it cafe racer style builds. So I think you're going to see a lot more people going into scramblers and you're probably going to have some people trying to do more hardtail bobbers and stuff like that out of the Japanese bikes. Or some people that have been doing that with like the Yamaha XS 650s and those for a while, but not a ton of people do that with like classic Hondas. I think you're going to see more people doing that. Um, The trouble is now that these bikes are becoming so popular, they're becoming very expensive and hard to find too. So the reason why they started out so popular or started to get so much momentum is because they were a dime a dozen and there was a million of them and they were in everybody's barns and garages and nobody cared about them and you could buy them for a couple hundred bucks. But now you know, hopefully not from people like me, but maybe people like me, there's more eyes on them. There's more people searching for them. And I've seen the prices over the last couple of years start to kind of go up to the British bike and some of the classic American bike, you know, heights. And I think that's a lot of the reason why, you know, people are going to start changing it up and probably picking classic Japanese models that other people kind of discarded. So it's going to be the getting into the 80s where a lot of bikes got i'm going to call it ugly at that point and it's going to be people seeing if they can take those bikes and make them cool because they're still cheap at the moment and they're still widely available and they haven't had that kind of wave of popularity that's going to increase the prices yet so that's where i think the japanese market has been and i think it's going towards you know just a little bit newer bikes but we'll see what people can do with them i'm I'm curious to see myself because i haven't uh I haven't tried one yet, but it's going to be a challenge to make one. some of those look pretty good. They are extremely hey, ugly. I've got an idea for <laughs> you. Since you like challenges, you could take and get a Harley Street 750 and try to do something to make that damn bike look good with that ugly-ass gas tank. Dude, that is a horrid bike. <laughs> no, it's a good bike. It's a bad it's, gas tank. It's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, the you lost me Harley, but <laughs> <laughs> we well, to be able to. You could pick up. Why do we have this guy on? I'm so confused right now. <laughs> oh, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying the shit out of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right we, we were talking about ugly bikes i remember i remember why we got on that subject oh yeah ouch so following up on jared's question um walter 
Volts says, on the same note, what is the least frustrating vintage motorcycle you've worked on? Which bike got the Tony Cox two pumps and a twist, and it was out of the shop. <laughs> it's out of the shop. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, there's been probably five or six CB550s that I've gotten that on the outside, you're like, okay, this thing's going to be some work. And then I take the carbs apart and they're pristine on the inside. Like simple clean out, put it back together. Goat already has spark, already has everything. Jump box fires up. No, like no trouble whatsoever. And I, I think there was even one I tried to make a will it run video on it. And it would have been the, it would have been a three minute video because it was like, oh, I cleaned the carbs and yep, it runs. That's it. It's done. Your retention rate would have been great. Right. Yeah. Three minute video. And this is where I say Honda for the win. (laughs) (laughs) I love me a Honda. I mean, I will say most of them don't give up a big fight. They they, they want to come back to life for the most part. They do. Hey, that's that's one important thing about Honda. Everybody needs to get their red wings. Oh, God damn. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Dustin just fell right off. (laughs) Dustin's out. He went black. (laughs) He's out. This one comes from Trent. He said, what websites and resources would be helpful when considering adding modern components to an early 70s bike? In my case, a 72 Yamaha Enduro. I mean, depending on what your budget is, I would say Moto Gadget, like we just talked about a minute ago, is a good way to go. So if your budget can support it, and they're not they're not crazy expensive if you compare it to replacing every wiring component on the whole bike anyway. So if you look at the difference, like I think it's worth it. And it's, there's nothing as a single part that you can do to a classic bike that's going to modernize it more than something like that. So I would go with that. I would go with a lithium-ion battery, but make sure you replace the voltage regulator rectifier. It's going to catch on fire. Ask me how I know. Um, <laughs> Oops. So I don't. I wish I had a website to point to for Yamaha stuff because most of the parts and stuff I end up getting are for Hondas. So I'm gonna have to go with just the Moto Gadget stuff, and then you know if you want to get real crazy and go with the guys at Cognito Moto and do like a modern front fork conversion. I have, have a you set ever of done those that? On the way. I have a set on the way that should be here next week. It's gonna, we're gonna be doing a 78 R100 BMW with a GSXR front end on it. When you do that, does it change the geometry of the bike? I mean, does it get a little twitchy? Um, no, not from what I found. It's because the fork length is the same, and then you're not changing the rake at all. So the kind of core, I guess, geometry of the bike pretty much stays unchanged. It's just much more modern valving and shocks and, of course, brakes, too, because you get the dual Brembos as opposed to, like, a single steel, you know, single piston caliper like a lot of these classic bikes have. So that's where the biggest component is. It's, like, ride quality, handling, and then braking. Brakes are good. <laughs> no. Yeah, you, you generally come into an issue when you fuck with the back end and raise or lower. Yeah, the, the CB750 I'm working on right now, somebody did uh, a very cheap, we'll say, attempt at a chopper build on it and use those little, like, lowering blocks that just move the mounting point of the rear shock, like, four inches back on the swing arm. So it just, like, <sighs> lowers the back off, but then the shocks at, like, completely the wrong angle. And I've never okay. ridden a bike on the street with those, but I imagine it rides like a nightmare. That's bad when you're out of position. <laughs> That's what she <laughs> said. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Got to watch right. out for Texas lane changes and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Throw hip out. Uh, Our last question comes from (laughs) Anders Eastern Shore. He says, do you think Honda would build and have success with a modern cafe racer style motorcycle similar to what Triumph has done with the Bonneville T120? This is a good idea. I like it. I like that idea. I think they would. They built a CB1100, I think is what it's called, which is the closest thing to that. And it has some vintage styling in a modern bike. I haven't seen, I guess I could say Triumph excluded, a lot of modern companies be able to pull that look off just because of the safety restrictions and all the modern, you know, fuel injection is hard to hide. There's a lot of components on modern bikes that make it very difficult to achieve that classic look. Um, but the, the two closest I've seen is Triumph and then the Ducati Sport Classic. You've seen those. It's like 2007-ish. That is like 
probably the best looking modern motorcycle in my opinion. So if they could pull it off like those companies did, then I think it would sell like crazy. And what, also if what, it wasn't a huge engine, you know what I mean? If it was a smaller displacement motorcycle so that people wouldn't be so intimidated to get on them. Exactly. You got to hit that market of the potential first bike riders. You know, that's who's going to be drawn to that kind of bike is somebody who wants to get their first bike, doesn't know how to wrench on a bike. So they don't want to get one that's 40 years old, but they want that classic look. That'd be a great so, attempt that's to see great idea. how many, <laughs> Yeah. new riders they could create was is by doing something like that. I think it spark a lot of interest. Well, I mean, Honda did it with the Cub, right? They put more people yeah. on motorcycles with the Honda Cub than than any mm-hmm. other company in history. Right. So why not do it with a you know three fifty that looks like it's sixty years old? I mean, I I think it's a great idea. I think I think you'd hit you'd hit such a huge market and you might even get some of these older riders that are, you know, maybe have even gotten rid of all their Harleys or their sportsters because they're just too heavy and they get on this, you know, this little bike that they can zip around town that also looks badass, right? Harleys aren't heavy, Ryan. Dang. (laughs) (laughs) Featherweight, dude. True. They have a little center of gravity. They feel like they're built perfectly, but they're heavy (laughs) as hell. <laughs> no, right. What you're talking about dead on, dead on because nostalgia is a big seller right now. I mean, I, this this is pertaining to motorcycles, but I went down the toy aisle with my kid the other day. They're selling fucking He-Man figures that looks like the original retro packaging. Yeah, I almost bought me a fucking Skeletor yesterday. And by the power of grace, <laughs> should, should have, dude. I had all the toys growing up. <laughs> Still you're trying upstairs. to get me He-Man. <laughs> I have the power. Oh my God. How did we get to fucking He Man? Talking about Hondas and went to He Man. (laughs) Tony, you ought to paint your bike to look like Battle Cat from He Man. (laughs) I should. But you you can dress like He Man for the first ride. I wouldn't look like He Man, I'll tell you that. Look more like the Michelin Man. By the power of Greybeard. Yeah. (laughs) what um have you how how custom have you went in as far as have you tried to have you tried to make any type of uh hardtail and used a like a co like a dirt bike motor or anything like that i haven't yet so there's a couple of builds that i have kind of in my mind that i'm dying to find the opportunity to build so whether it's going to be finding the right customer who says just build me something cool and go for it or just finding the time to build one for myself. And some of those ideas is exactly what I want to do. So I want to do, I want to build like a classic board track bike, you know, from like the teens, but with like a modern engine in it. So get like a modern Indian or something like that and take that engine, but make it look like it's a 1917 board track racer. It's something like crazy like that. So I'd love to just find a cool looking engine and just build a frame around it. Like yeah. one of my big inspirations is a guy named um, Maxwell Hazon. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him or not, but he's a big custom builder. He builds like maybe two bikes a year tops, but that's what oh, he wow. does. Is he, he finds some super obscure engine from a 48, you know, French, whatever the heck it is. And then just builds like the craziest custom frame and bike around it. Everything from scratch, all the suspension, the wheels, everything. And he's like, building a twin engine supercharged bike now and i would love to get to the point of of that level of fabrication where i could just find one cool component and just make a motorcycle around it yeah i just i didn't know if you had ever done anything with like just like a thumper motor you know single cylinder you know 250 or 450 just something to make a light nimble throw around bike basically yeah i mean i'm actually thinking about taking apart the klr and seeing if i can make something that looks vintage out of it because I mean, a KLR in all aspects is a vintage bike. It's a, it's a carbureted. It's not it's not a modern motorcycle. So I thought about stripping away all the plastics and the you know the whole rear subframe and everything and seeing what's possible with a KLR as far as can I make a vintage looking modern adventure bike? Modern in quotations. <laughs> it could be done. Right. I mean, I what? think it could be pretty cool. What the KLR run like forty years or something? Was it something crazy like that? Oh, yeah, something like that. Sometime in the mid mid to late eighties, I think. Eighty nineteen. I think it was nineteen eighty six or eighty seven was the first year. So it was 
whatever, 20, yeah, about 40 years, something like that, yeah. 40, 41 Basically years. Basically unchanged. They went through like it's one generation change, and even that, like, it was cosmetic mostly. And they still didn't sure. fix the fucking doohickey. <laughs> After all those they years, have, it seems like they would get it years. right. I love that y'all say doohickey, and everybody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like I say, it's a... Uh, it's one of those things that sometimes they break. It's a common issue. I don't know why it's a common issue. I don't know why they never fixed it or changed the design. But I know that it's cheap enough to where if you buy one, you can buy the replacement parts and change it and never have another issue out of never it. Never have to again. sweat it. So right. I, I'm going to change gears on Taylor for a minute on content well, creation. Do you do all all of it yourself or do you have somebody help you with your videos? I am a one-man operation through and God through. damn, so, man. How do you pull that off? It's not... I don't know that it's not... I don't know. I would say it's not easy, but time management, it's I don't get to do all the things I want to do, which stinks, you know, because it's like I want to build seven, eight, nine bikes a month and go crazy and do all the, you know, YouTube video every day. And so it's a lot of just kind of having to pick and choose what I focus on in a given day. But that kind of leads me down this path of how my I want to kind of evolve classic octane over the next year. And I want to focus more on content creation. So what I'm going to start doing is kind of slowing down a little bit on building customer bikes and try to transition more over to focusing on YouTube videos, Instagram, that kind of content creation, merchandise, you know, build a couple of different revenue streams for Classic Octane to where that can be my full-time job. So it's like I wake up in the morning, mess around with cars and motorcycles all day, happen to film it. And then like, that's what I do every day. So that's what my end goal is. And I'm, I'm kind of working towards that right now. I end up getting pulled more towards building customer bikes all day. And I don't get to make as many videos as I want just because of the amount of effort it takes to do it. Like, I think a lot of people watch YouTube videos without realizing like, it's a lot of work. I know. Yes. I say that all the time, it especially is. when you're doing like work videos like that, because you have to stop, you have to set everything up. You have to make sure everything's right. And then you start doing it. And then you don't know if you're in focus and shit can go south the entire time you're doing it. And it's, it's, it's a lot of extra work, especially when you're doing something like that yeah strapping a camera sure. to your helmet and riding down the road is a piece of cake but when you're doing actual work on it it's it's a lot of setup a lot of work to do those yeah it's something that i knew it was going to be a decent amount of work but it's all of that little stuff that you're talking about that really sets you aside from somebody else it's like what makes your video worth watching over somebody else's even if it's exact or very similar content and a lot of it comes down to that like forethought of yeah okay where's the camera is it in focus is my audio level good is my you know you guys know better than anybody for audio it's like that yeah. can make or break a video if you got oh, some yeah. garbage mm -hmm. audio like I'm just somebody's just going to click right off of it so all of that stuff is you know it takes a lot of forethought and then also took a lot of trial and error in the beginning of me just like figuring it out and i had a couple of videos i just had to totally scrap because there's some crazy background noise or you know, I used to use this kind of cheap <laughs> shotgun mic on top of my camera and you record seven, eight clips and all of a sudden you go to edit it and there's no audio whatsoever. And it's like the meat of the video is now missing. So it's like you can't just go back and refilm the first start of a thing or, you know, halfway yeah. through rebuilding an engine because it's already back together now. So you can lose, you know, a whole video just by, you know, one small issue and that takes a lot of patience to, to get over that. It does. It does and, then, and then the editing time too. I don't think people realize exactly how much time goes into editing these things. So to, right. so to piggyback onto what Tony just said with, with that though, this is, I guess this is my question for you, Taylor. You said you had a corporate job prior to, you know, doing this, right? So now you, you have your own business, you're building motorcycles, you're doing content creation. Are you happier now doing all of that than you were just working in the corporate world and doing this on a on the side as a hobby. I mean, that seems like a very silly question because of <laughs> course I'm a, of course I'm a lot happier now. Um, yeah, right, but I it's mean, a huge I, leap though, right? I mean, it's a huge leap to do that. Like so many people envy that leap, that leap into your own business, into really turning what you love into what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So it is a terrifying thing to do as anybody's going to tell you um and it was multiple years in the making i would say so i started the channel probably i guess it was six or seven years ago um and it was always my intention to do it full-time but at the same time i was 
growing and continuing to kind of move along in my career. So I was the head of development for an app uh, development company. So I was 100% looking at a computer screen all day, you know, having to manage people, having to manage a P&L. That's a lot of stress. And what I would do on nights and weekends is go into the garage and work on motorcycles and play around. And that was my, you know, escape. So after years and years of doing that, it was actually the bike behind me, my Triumph Hardtail. When I got that bike into the hand-built motorcycle show in 2019, that gave me the confidence that, you know, I might be able to make a run at this thing. Like I might be able to do it. And less than a month after that was in the show, I quit my job and never looked back. So I'm very thankful that so far, it's been great. It's worked out. You know, this year at the beginning, like I mentioned, was going to be a little bit rocky, but happy to say that got over that hurdle and have been extremely busy. And um, I'm coming to this point now where I'm almost having to kind of take a step back and decide which direction I want Classic Octane to go. So I'm kind of at a fork in the road where one side of it, I can continue down this path of building bikes for customers and go get myself a industrial warehouse, hire mechanics, like make it a, what I'm going to consider a legitimate motorcycle business. Or the other side of it is going down the content creation side, like we just talked about. And it's step back from customer bikes a little bit, do more YouTube, Instagram, you know, get sponsors, which I've been lucky enough to have, you know, some reach out recently and go down that path and see if I can make a run at that, which is kind of the direction that I'm pointing towards just because 2020 has been what it is. And I'm very glad that I don't have a big overhead of a warehouse space and a bunch of employees to, to worry about. So I think if there's a time for me to try and make it a content creation business revolving around classic bikes and motorcycles, you know, now would be the time. There's big money out there in content creation if you hit. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that, you know, I sit back and if you're going to write down on a piece of paper, like what is your ideal day look like? And mine would be to wake up, mess around with classic cars and motorcycles, go to sleep and that'd be it. And not have to worry about a boss, not have to worry about anything else. And that's my clearest path to, to get there. And that's I think, why I want to pursue it. I think sitting on the couch all day sounds phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you ask uh, John Maxwell, um, he would tell you that opening up your own shop to, to make more content is, is in- increasingly difficult. He, uh, he tried to do that very same thing, and I don't think he's put out a video in two months. Since he opened his shop, yeah. Yeah, his, his shop, busy. but his shop is crazy busy. So right. he, he's building, he's able to, he's been able to build his legitimate business off of his his content creation. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely pros and cons to both sides. So having that brick and mortar business is kind of more of, I guess what you consider the traditional business path, you know, it's like right. when you're, when you're looking at a business plan, rarely does it say make videos and hope that strangers watch them. It's uh, you know, I'm going to build <laughs> motorcycles and I'm going to go, you know, and expand and have parts and do all that kind of stuff. And I still might go down that path at some point, just because I do get a lot of joy out of building bikes for people. Again, if there's a time for me to try and do it kind of solely on my own, now would be the time to do it before uh before I have a bunch of employees and overhead to worry about. Yeah. And right now it it is crazy busy. I was down, we have a local vintage motorcycle shop here in Louisville where I'm at. And I was down there this weekend and he was complaining that he's been like so busy during this COVID thing. He doesn't have time to do anything. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, and it's like what we talked about a little bit earlier where there's just so many people that are dying to get out on the road that I think any people are just buying any bike they can. And a lot of the times they end up being a bike that needs some work and they need to find somebody to, to do it. So I've had people from all over the place reach out from, you know, a modern BMW they want to add some luggage racks to, to like full restorations and people just want to get out and ride. So I think a lot of motorcycle shops which i'm very grateful for and i think a lot of you know motorcycle riders are are just crazy busy it's like that in the automotive industry too we've been damn crazy yeah so do you think this is making new riders or do you think it's making new riders for the moment i like to think that it's making new riders long term because it's uh, getting a lot of people into riding bikes if they can find the right bike they can get in at an entry level price point if it's a classic bike they're going to have to learn how to work on it themselves 
And what I think that does is it gives you a whole new respect for the machine when you're the one that's responsible for keeping it on the road. So there are going to be some people that get frustrated and the bike breaks down and they don't know how to fix it and they're going to give up on it. But I like to think that the majority of people are going to have a passion for working on things and want to keep that going. And that's just going to branch out into more and more bikes in their future and more and more kind of sustained riders. Nice. So what's your turnaround time? Taylor, if somebody says, I want you to restore this bike, what are they looking at? So if it was today, I would say I can't start it until February. Once I start it, wow. it depends It <laughs> depends on what the bike is. But I would say if it's a classic Honda, I would tell them six weeks, but it's probably more like three, three or four. No, boy, you're hauling ass then. Well, I was just going to say, if it's a if it's a classic Honda, since I've done so many of them, like there's very rarely something that can surprise me or, or throw me off too much. So I did a challenge earlier this year with one of my own bikes where I challenged myself to build a bike in a week. So I did a series of seven videos of seven days in a row where I started with a rusty piece of junk and built it all the way into a bike that's indistinguishable from any of the other customs I built and did it in seven days. It was a very long seven days because I also filmed and edited videos and uploaded every day too, but it can be done pretty quickly if you already have all the tools and parts and knowledge on what to do. So you don't have to tell us what you, what you charge, but you mentioned if we can get people more on bikes that are entry level, are you building entry level bikes? Or are you building bikes that are um, beyond that, what would one would consider to be entry level? I guess that's relative on what people's budgets are. So I would say I used to build more of an entry level bike. Luckily, I've started to build a clientele that wants a little bit higher end, something that's a little bit more bespoke. Like I was talking about that BMW that I'm building, the 78R100. That's a the biggest project I've taken on, not only from what we're doing to the bike, but also financially the, the cost of the build. So I'm starting to, I would say, grow in what my average bike costs, but none of the bikes I build are crazy unattainable. Like, I, you know, I'm not building some you know six-figure motorcycle or something crazy like that. Like most of the bikes that I build can be had for less than what a new bike would cost. Well, there you go. The, and, there the, it and, is. And, and the bikes that I was looking at, at least, I mean... They are vintage bikes, but they look brand new. They look badass. So, I mean, it's not like somebody's going to get a bike and they're going to, you know, drive away on it and it's going to look like, you know, it's going to look like it's vintage, but it's still going to be look like you rolled it off the showroom floor in 19, you know, 1975. Right. Yeah. I try to go through all of the major components and do, you know, top and rebuilds and, carburetors and the whole wiring system and the suspension and the brakes every system goes gets gone through i won't build a bike without doing that because i don't want to send a customer down the road with a 40 year old wiring harness and have it catch on fire you know two miles down like i kind of am getting to the point now where if i'm going to build it i'm going to do everything so that i can put my stamp on it i'm going to put my name on it um otherwise it's a project that i probably wouldn't take on if uh, if somebody wants to kind of cut corners on it that's quality assurance right there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot to do on those sons of bitches. I know firsthand. <laughs> I'm still trying to get one on the road. <laughs> I'm close. So Taylor, let everybody know where we could find you on the internet as well as your social media. Yeah, of course. So most of my content goes out on YouTube. So youtube.com slash classic octane. I do also have an Instagram. That's classic octane. And then I have a website, classicoctane.com, where I do merch and I sell some parts and stuff like that on there as well. But those are the three main places. I don't check Facebook as often as I probably should, but you know, YouTube, Instagram, classicoctane.com are the best spots. So I'm going to ask Taylor a question right off thing because i got a compression issue on this honda and i want his I, I want his take on it so i'm packing 150 pounds on the right and 120 on the left should i rebuild that top end or just ride the damn thing ship it just ride it just i mean if, it. if if it's over 110 i would ride it and i bet you'd be surprised 10 15 miles of riding it like you stole it it'll probably come right up that, it's yeah, probably it's a nice. slightly stuck ring. It's probably, it's if it has 120, it's nothing catastrophic, which means I probably wouldn't bother pulling the top end apart. Okay. Yeah, that, it starts fine. I mean, I just redid the whole wire harness, coils, rectifier, the whole nine yards. It starts first kick, but uh, yeah, the compression on the left's a little low. But I, I would say it hasn't been started in a decade too. So Right. Yeah, I would give it some miles and let the rings kind of reseed a little bit. Maybe you got some rust buildup or something on there, and I bet it'll pop right back up. You could also try some 
you know, Seafoam or Marvel Mitchell or something like that in there might get uh, some of those rings unstuck if that is in fact the the issue. So you just put the Mistral oil right in the spark plug holes, right? Or you throw it yeah. as gas? Yeah, I mean, really, you could do it either way. If you're trying to get rings unstuck, I would put it straight in the cylinder, let it sit for a little while, and then leave the spark plugs out and crank it over so you're not trying to compress it. Sure. And then, yeah, go from there. I'm doing that on a, a 550 right now that I have that same issue where I just have one cylinder out of the four that's a little bit low. And my gut is that it's just been sitting a little while. It's probably got a little bit of a stuck ring, but nothing, nothing crazy. All right. Good tip. Good tip. I like it. So, so here's, here's a question from Walter. He goes by volts again in the discord of five Dirty bikers. And he says, so now that winter is here, here's a question for all five of you. Technically winter is not here yet. It's still fall. Walter. Oh, it's so. fucking winter for Eskimo man up there. <laughs> <laughs> he lives in the Arctic circle. And a couple, of his, a couple of his present don't really get to experience winter, but I mean, uh, that's okay. Uh, but, he, but he asks, for those who store their bikes, what are the things they do before storing it for winter? Ryan, since you're the king of the north. and Yeah. Well, I would say that I am very fortunate because I have a heated garage. And so my bike never really gets below uh, 45 or 50 degrees. I keep my keep my garage usually around 45 or 50 degrees. And then if I'm going to do any work in the garage, I turn it up to 70. Um, I always change my fluids at the end of the season this year. I did my 10 K probably about um, a month ago. So my fluids are fairly fresh on my bike. And then I hook it up to a battery tender when it's not, um, when it's not running. And uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much all I do this year. I might put it up on a stand um, to get the, um, to get the tires off the wheels off the ground and, and give the suspension a bit of a break. But other than that, I, I don't really do much more than that because I have it in a heated garage and I have it hooked to a battery tender. Hang on. You, you said a heated garage and you said you keep it 45 degrees. That's yep. but then he said he heated. turns it up to 70 when he wants to work. So I'm imagining him in his garage and his thong with like a palm tree and a beer. Like, hell yeah. I, I sit in there with a beer for sure when it's, yeah. Cause it's like you're getting fresh air cause it's outside right in your garage. But, but yeah. And, and, and for us, when I like, when I say that I have a heated garage, I actually have my furnace with my gas plumbed to a heater that's in my garage. So I have a gas furnace in my garage to heat it. Yeah. Boy, and, you, I, and my, and my uh, garage is insulated and sheetrocked and, you know, finished and everything like that. So you have to have that here. Fuck. <laughs> my, uh, go ahead oh i'm sorry Ray, go ahead. We, we, we always we also have uh either six inch or eight inch thick walls too tony for construction here in the north Dude, Ooh, jesus i couldn't do it <laughs> i heat my garage to 45 degrees it's toasty out there <laughs> when it's, that's crazy when it's 20 below zero that is warm <laughs> Now, uh, Mike Walter says for those who ride all year, he put Mike, do you you do ride all year? Are you you planning to ride through the winter on your bike? I am. You you said you ride all year wrong. uh, All year round. Walter wants to know what winter mods do you do to your bike or do you do anything? What do you mean as far as to winterize or winter mods? Do you winterize or do you ride all year? No, I I mean, that's the thing is I, I like I never winterize my bike. Okay. Do you do anything different to it as far as modifications to ride in the colder weather? No. No? Okay. No. I mean, I've got a, with this bike, I haven't had this bike through winter, but with it being a Honda, their stators aren't known for being the best output They're a little <laughs> from anemic. factory. They, they are anemic. So I've got to send my stator off and have it rewound for uh, more wattage to produce well, more wattage. Maybe if you didn't have so many fucking lights on the bike, the stator could keep up. No, it, it still couldn't keep up regard because I'm wanting to put heated grips and. It was the heated. penetrator that did it. <laughs> yeah. You put that penetrator light on, that's what took it over the edge. The yeah, penetrator is a light? I didn't know that was called a light. That was a light. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a lot bar. Oh, that's good it's, it's the new light that Mike sets on and he just opens his mouth and the light comes out <laughs> and he's going down the road. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder why they call it the penetrator. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. it's it's a new light. It's, uh, it's okay. brand new. It's a suppository. <laughs> that's that's a crazy light. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now, Walter also says since he doesn't want to leave Mary out. <laughs> Thank you, Walter. What, what gear do you wear when the temperature drops, when it when it gets cold in Florida? Cold in Florida. Yeah. Well, a hoodie. I knew she was going <laughs> to say that. <laughs> <A hoodie. laughs> no, so, I, have, I have had to wear leather chaps a couple of times, but if y'all will notice on my Instagram, normally when I have to wear chaps, it's half chaps. Very rarely have I had to wear full chaps. So, Do you, have you ever worn gloves on your bike and in, in ever riding? I, I have worn gloves a couple of times when it's really cold in Florida. It doesn't Jeez. get very cold, but yeah, I mean, I have I have ridden with gloves a couple of times. Taylor, how cold does it get down in Austin? Does it get cold? Um, we'd be surprised if we got to freezing more than once or twice. So do you ride in that or no? Um, I have. I don't try to. I yeah, pretty it's much not, if it's, it's not any fun, is it? No, if I pretty much about forty five around there is about as low as I like to go. I'm I'm a bit of a wuss when it comes to the cold. But you know, also <laughs> I'll ride up to hundred and ten. So it's a little yeah. bit it's a, a wide range and luckily it doesn't get down that cold here, but so just you, wait 24 hours and it changes it changes right. do you do you winterize or anything your bikes when you store them or yeah so it's uh, a bit more of a process on a classic bike because carburetors so if you're if you're running a carbureted bike what i would do is a full tank of if you have it available uh ethanol free gas so i'd run a full tank of ethanol free and then either shut the petcock off and let the bike run out of gas or drain all the bowls of the carburetor so that you have no fuel sitting in your carburetor. Because if you have ethanol fuel in your carbs and it sits for more than, I would say, five, six weeks, it'll gum, it'll gum the jets up and you'll have to pull it apart and clean it. So if you're going to park the bike for more than a month and a half, uh, drain the bowls. And if you can do ethanol free, I would definitely do that too. Damn, I got my work cut out. Tony, I imagine you and I probably do the same thing. When yeah, I I change the oils and change the fluids and plug it into a battery tender is pretty much. Have you changed the plugs in yours yet? No, man, you got to pull the fucking tank off to do it. You do, which is I, I hate that design yeah, by Harley for these new bikes. Fucking genius, put four I, spark plugs in it and two of them under the tank. <laughs> guess what? So you know, normal maintenance it tells you to change your plugs at so many miles, right? Yeah, my CRF service intervals never say to change the spark plug really yes it is a inspect and so reinstall you're supposed to change every rod no uh, you're supposed to change, you change it never you gotta change your oil every 400 miles don't you or something crazy like that i gotta change my my one quart 1.2 quarts of oil every 600 miles God damn. That's because it's that, basically a dirt bike, right? It's it a is dirt a dirt bike. bike. Yeah. yeah. But it takes, I mean, it's it's literally three bolts and then the drain plug. Because I, I only have to, I only change my filter every other change. So it, it's three bolts and a drain plug. It takes about a minute and a half to drain all the oil out. Less than that, pouring the 1.2 quarts back in it and going. Dude, this old fucking Honda I have, it doesn't even have a fuel filter. Oil filter. An oil filter yeah got some kind of fucking spinny thing in there what is that thing taylor yeah some kind of like centrifugal filter they don't do it on the 550s or 750s they actually got a proper paper filter on the front but for whatever reason on the 450s they thought it was enough to put a, a piece of screen in there and let it just fling itself around and that was, that was yeah. gonna be clean enough good enough <laughs> it's fine i just they centrifuge it and spin it up until it changes the molecular you know molecular uh consistency of the of the de, of the debris and it just vaporizes I, I, it. i don't know i pulled some sludge out of that fucking thing man it was pretty rank that, <laughs> that was when probably, i emptied those damn forks i don't know what kind of oil was in there but my god nasty. you guys see that fo that photo uh jared weems had when he took that transmission apart it, it looks like, like somebody milk. somebody melted a caramello candy bar inside that fucking thing. <laughs> In the <train laughs> it, it was sludgy thick, and it was like a light brown. It was it was gross looking. Sounds like sounds like White Castle. Yes. <laughs> Before or after you eat it? Exactly. <laughs> oh, always after. Oh wait. After. Hey 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 <gasps> hey Taylor. A couple questions for you there, Bud Rowe. <laughs> 
Tony. What? Question number one. Are you a White Castle fan, Taylor? I have never eaten White Castle in my life. Uh, no shit. We sh- don't have them here. Oh, we got In and Out Burger, which I assume is light years better than White Castle. It is. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. In and Out Burger is amazing. <laughs> yeah. The closest thing we had is I grew up in Atlanta and we had Crystal Burgers. So Crystal, I think, is pretty darn close to a White Castle. It's like the little squares and like. Yeah. I'm out. What'd you think about the Crystal Burgers? Uh, no, thank you. It's going to be a hard <laughs> pass for me. See, it doesn't matter which one you stop at. Crystal burgers are disgusting. (laughs) That's the one. That's the one thing I didn't get when I was in Tennessee was crystals. So that could have been the trifecta. Here, here in Kentucky, you can get the White Castle. Yeah. Hey, man, the Beastie Boys can't be wrong. Hey, man, I'll tell you what. Last time I ate them, I think my system's just total rejecting those fuckers nowadays, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a scene. I mean, it's to come in. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, Tony, uh, Tony, you know, lives by the, the, the Beastie Boys verse. He went to White Castle and his spleen blew out. Yes, it did. <laughs> it, was, it was bad. And the second question, Mike? Oh, God. Hey, Taylor, do you know what a Merkin is? American, huh? Can't say that I do. Well, uh, it's a real item. It's otherwise known as a pubic wig. Okay, okay. <laughs> you can go on Amazon and buy one. Hmm. Can I just go to your guys' like uh, affiliate page? I'm assuming it's linked below, or where, where do I find that? <laughs> well, we, we, we are working on a FDB Merkin. Yeah, no, we, we just can't <laughs> figure out how to stick it on. Mm. We are working the market. Are you fighting over if it's going to be salt and pepper or not? (laughs) Yes. And length. Length is a big question. Do we want like full native or do we want it trimmed up? Right. You work two inches long, you might cover the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. 1985 is calling. Man. We're going to make one and call it the mushroom in the mulch. Uh, let, let me be the first one to tell you, welcome to the Five Degree Bikers, Taylor, and thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's Ryan. Yes, ma'am. Tell us all, all about our t-shirts and stickers and Groovember. Everybody, uh, if you have been following Five Degree Bikers, you know that this is the month of Groovember for us, and we're trying to grow our podcast, grow our Instagram, grow our YouTube. We're trying to increase our footprint in the media market. And to do that, we put out a Five Dirty Bikers limited edition t-shirt. So you can go to fivedirtybikers.com, find our link to ordering our new t-shirt, and um, you can pay us by PayPal and make sure you use friends and family. We also have uh, a new limited edition sticker that will be coming out. It's the same design that's on our t-shirt, except for our sticker will be full color. And so we will be um, having that available very, very soon. Orders have been placed for that. And for those of you that have already placed a t-shirt order, um, we're hoping within the next few weeks to get those from our printer. I just found out yesterday that our printer is having some distribution difficulties. Apparently blanks for t-shirts are worldwide shortages. So I we will be getting those shipped out as soon as we get those printed for those of you that have already pre-ordered those shirts. But pre-sale for our shirts is still on. So if you want to get a Five Dirty Bikers limited edition t-shirt, go on to our website again at fivedirtybikers.com. Hit our link for our t-shirt and our merch. So there you go. Also in November, we are doing a giveaway. Compliments of Wild Ass, the real Wild Ass on Instagram. If you want to look that up, they do seat cushions. Um, You can use your seat cushion on your motorcycle, in your vehicle, wherever you want to use it. But we are giving away one of their brand new saddle edition seat cushions. Um, Check us out on Instagram. Look that up. All the details there are all the details are there on how to enter. Um, we'll be doing that. I think our last day to enter is November the 23rd, and our winner will be announced on November the 30th during Grovember. So if you have chronic hemorrhoids, this is the perfect giveaway for you. Keep it dirty, riders. We'll see you next time on the FDB Podcast.